Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. Now we're live. We're live. Episode live here. 12 of 6. <laughs> I'm going to start doing, I'll say 12, like we just shorten that number every time, so it's 12 of 5. Yeah, next 12 week of 3. 12 of 4. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it was, a, I think it's a Cat Williams bit that he does, and he's talking about, I just saw it recently, it was hilarious, but he's talking about Joe Biden. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was talking about like, he's like, this man is 96 years old. And like every time he would go to say that, he made him one year older. In the oh, yeah. So like, <laughs> like every other sentence, he's like, give the man a break. He's 102 years old. Like Every time was one year older. Yeah. Uh, so good. What do you think? Uh, if, if you watch a lot of comedy. Uh, I, it's funny. Like I used to do a lot of the full specials, but anymore it's just like i'll watch the bits and stuff yeah, i yeah. still like some guy like if there's a couple of guys i like i'll watch i'll sit down and watch the full special um but i watch a lot of clips of stuff from from various guys what do you think about rogan specials the one the one that he did i want to say like five or six years ago mm-hmm. for netflix i really liked but i didn't watch the the one after that or the most recent one but I don't know. He he's funny and it's, but it's kind of one note. Yeah. Ish that's, for me, you know, that would be kind of my, my take on him. Like I think he's a good cultivator and, and this is something I posted about the other day. You know, not everyone has the capacity for genius, but some people are the illuminators, you know, some people mm. are kind of the, the, the conductor, so to say. Yeah. And, uh, I think Joe is that like, I think yeah. he's funny enough that he can carry a special, I think yeah. that he is. I, I like some of his humor on the podcast more than the structured jokes, but yeah. um, I do think he's an amazing conduit to a lot of these guys. Um, you know, how many careers has he built just by sharing people? You know, and yeah. and I think that's a that's a unique gift to to possess that power and maybe say even, even influence, mm-hmm. but to to share that with his friends. You know, the people that he yeah. finds funny or interesting or whatever. Um, 
but yeah, I'm kind of I've the never... same way on Theo too. Yeah, like, for sure. I, well, I, you I know what's it's... funny about Theo is, dude, he used to be on the Bob and Tom show. Mm-hmm. Like that was a that was like a syndicated radio show around here. Mm-hmm. I think they were in Indiana. They were but, nationwide. Um, we used to get them in. Yeah. Okay. Here too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I knew. I knew they were. I knew they were syndicated or whatever. But I didn't know yeah. that. Um, or not syndicate. Well, they are now. But like, yeah. I just meant nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I heard about Theo Vaughn. God, when I was in college, mm-hmm. you know, like who is this idiot? And he wasn't. <laughs> he was. He was funny, but like. You know, I think like like anybody, I saw another post today that uh, I think it was Alex. I can't remember who it was now. I was going to say Alex Haley, but that's not right. It was it was Miles Davis. That's who it was. Miles Davis. It said, um, mm-hmm. "Imitate first, innovate next." And I think a lot of these guys, like Theo, was probably in the genre of, "I have to do comedy in this model to be funny." And you know, when he started just becoming the guy that, yeah, you know man, in my town, there's this guy, like he always knows a guy or he knows this or knows that. And it just became like more him, you know, <laughs> yeah. just kind of like spitballing stuff. Right. And I think that's cool. But the reason I, the reason I ask all that was I wanted to get your opinion on the, the pendulum swing with, with comedy. Cause I've seen some really, really mm. anti woke, uh, almost what I would say borderline, like in your face, racism, sexism, and things like that. Now, and I know that it's comedy and I know that comedy mm-hmm. always plays and preys on the taboos of the time. Do you think that as a collective consciousness that has probably been influenced more towards stand-up comedy because of a guy like Rogan, do you think that we'll just call it that locker room humor is mm-hmm. going to infiltrate its way back into society? Because, you know, we, we've talked about it before, you know, the pendulums of, of, of any yeah. context in life come and go they swing mm-hmm. so do you think that in light of all this hyper feeling hyper emotion hyper uh offendedness uh wokeness if you want to call it that um do you think there's going to be like a, a pendulum swing to the other side where it's like people are just fed up and and then it's we're, we're all going to start calling a spade a spade from whatever viewpoint we have i mean <laughs> i'm not necessarily against that but i also know that some of these ideas right probably aren't productive so is comedy funny when it's counterproductive to society i think that can be well i think that second question might be even a little different than the first because the the stand-up guys i think have always been like and how they think of themselves i'll start there like they Mm. think that they should be able like this is comedy like there's no limits on what we should be able to say that's the point like we can go right. after everyone you know that's mm-hmm. the beauty of what it is and so these last handful as long of years, as you do go after everyone that's the that's right. the caveat right yeah right right and then if uh like in these last couple of years when guys when like when we talked a little bit about like the cancel culture stuff but when that starts happening and guys start getting told what they can and can't talk about in that subset of personality specifically i think it makes them want to do it even harder you know what I mean? Like they get that pushback and they're like, well, no, like, th- and I, some of them fold under it, I guess. Cause there's some that like just kind of disappeared and went away with they, mm-hmm. if stuff came out that they were making jokes about and they didn't want to deal with it. But then you see guys like Bill Burr and a couple of these other guys are like, uh, no, I'm going to say, and even Chappelle, 
like yeah. Chappelle catching heat from, I mean, going after Netflix and then winning that battle, yeah. essentially. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there aren't many people who could pull that off. But oh, you it mean was Comedy him. Central? He went to Netflix after the comedy. Yeah. Right. I, I even mean just just recently oh, with, the yeah, whole yeah, Net- yeah. with the whole Netflix yeah. thing when they were trying yeah. to pull down his special for making right. the trans jokes and all that yep. kind of stuff. And he's like, well, no, I'm going to do whatever I want and you're not going to do anything about it. And do so you think, do you think it's interesting now that we have personalities that transcend media? Hmm. You know, because it's like Dave Chappelle could literally walk up and say the, the most offensive thing in the world. Mm hmm. And he might be dropped by Netflix. He might be dropped by Amazon Prime. I bet he could start a Chappelle app and it would flourish, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what used to be the suppressor, you know, the media, the the elites in that crowd, the Hollywood elites, whatever, you know, you could blacklist somebody and they're, they're done. And, you know, there's yeah. stories of that over and over and over. We've gotten to an age where there's so many outlets for yeah. expression, um, you know, Rogan being one, I... I wrestle with the with the feeling of of Rogan going to Spotify as a success because mm-hmm. um, YouTube was certainly I don't know how it would work because what would be his you know he would have to have Apple or Spotify but like I think at this point right. he could probably just start his own stream charge ten dollars a month or whatever and he'd probably make more than the hundred million so. I'm I'm curious about where that deal worked out. And for a guy that is so like, I want to do whatever the hell I want to do. Yeah. How much of the game he still has to play or does Spotify be like, that's Joe. He does whatever he wants. Everybody yeah. else lives by these community guidelines is, you know, I just think it's an interesting time where it's a, it's a beautiful thing and it's a dangerous thing, right? You know, it's beautiful that you can have the confidence to know, well, if it doesn't work here, maybe this isn't the right audience. I can go elsewhere. But at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, it's also like it empowers these people to go further. And maybe, yeah. maybe that's what it should be. You know, how far do we go before we fall off the ledge? But I just think it's an interesting time. I think there's yeah. going to be some really unique things come. Because, I mean, think about what we've lost in the last five years, let's say. The, mm-hmm. the you know, just the the box store or the you know, the mall, those things are going away. So things that we've constantly kind of had as bedrock for, for our society, they're evolving. You know, media is definitely changing. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more positive outlook than I've typically had where we're going down the drain. It's just, we're doing things different and that Mm -hmm. feels uncomfortable. So sometimes that feels like we're going to hell, but you know, we'll probably find some great stuff along the way. Well, and we're seeing a lot of it with like the whole Twitter and Elon thing too. Mm-hmm. Like that exact same example where they, for, for years when we were dealing with all of the, when everyone was dealing with the censorship stuff that was happening on Twitter, that was obvious that that's what was happening. And all these other platforms that are doing the same thing, then the whole, the whole message was, you know, oh, we'll just go create your own platform. Mm-hmm. Right. And a bunch popped up and they weren't like successful, but then Elon comes in, he's like, or I'll just buy this one and make it how we want it or whatever. And then when the other side is hearing, well, now just go make your own platform. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. we, you realize how ridiculous of a statement that is because it's the resources required to do something like that to the scale to which it was with these other platforms. It's like, that's not just going to happen. So yeah. you have to start you- this at this baseline. 
do you think it's even possible to compete with the one, you know, when I, and I go back to MySpace, that was the mechanism for a number of years. And I never thought it would go away. It just kept growing bigger, bigger, bigger. And now Facebook has seen somewhat of a, a, a downturn in, in some senses of its use. Uh, Instagram being more popular, obviously TikTok more widespread and popular than Instagram. So yeah. how, you know, I don't want to take this too far down this road because we had a lot of good stuff to talk about, but at the same time, I think it's important for a curious mind to have hope, you know, yep. uh, is it even possible to build the combative to a Twitter? Is it even possible to build the combative to an Instagram and, or is it going to be these micro pods where it's like, Hey, Ross and I are going to do this thing over here and it's just going to be to our channel. We're going to have 15, 20 members and we're going to talk to you every week. Mm -hmm. Like I could see that happening. The micro tribalism, yeah. you know, yep. becoming more, more, I mean, I think it's already happened in some ways, but I, I could see it from a media perspective too. I mean, could you imagine a, a production group that has, you know, 10,000 followers and every week they're making a show specifically for 10,000 followers, you know, it yeah. could be kind of cool. That could be that an would, interesting twist and turn. Well, and I think like to your point of having the, these examples of there's so many possibilities of the, now that with the technology that we have, like talking about, you know, Chappelle could go make, I mean, Chappelle could go make his own TV network if yeah. he wanted to even go, you know what I mean? Like, and Oprah. he would, he, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but that's, it, it doesn't, I don't think like to your point, it doesn't need to be someone like Chappelle that, even yeah. needs to do that. Like it can be these smaller, even incredibly niche down pockets of stuff. That's super specific. Like you have your extremely targeted audience and they're super engaged, you know, that's, mm -hmm. and that's going to be a, a bigger dictator of if something's going to work than having, you know, 200,000 followers and 98,000, you know, or 198,000 of them are people that scroll right past stuff or they're half of them are bots. And like, you know, yeah. just that, inflates that number that doesn't mean anything because i'm trying to I, and i can't remember who said it but it's that it's like the thousand true fans idea like yeah. a business a business will thrive if all I think it Jim has Winter is was like big on that yeah a, a, a business will thrive if all it has is a thousand like diehard people that follow mm -hmm. it you know that like anytime you put something out they'll download it they'll buy it they'll share it but like all you need is a thousand and yeah. people get this real like inflated sense of I, you know, I've only got 2,500 followers on Instagram and I need to be at 150 if I'm going to actually do anything to make me money. And it's like, well, 2,500 people, if they're doing everything that you like, if those are diehard people, you'll never, you, that's twice as much as you actually need. It's yeah. just a matter of, are you like serving those people in a positive way that's adding value and they want to continue to, to buy or whatever that service. Well, if you break it down, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording some of the avenues that uh, I've put down for myself to move forward in. And uh, one of those, you know, I've had a lot of requests for the Peace, Love and Meat t-shirts. Obviously, it was a little bit more driven when I was, when Terrence and I were doing some stuff together and I was highly, highly, like it was posting every day, it was workout every day, journal every day. Yep. So obviously the the influx of interest was then. Yep. But I think now because of some of the transitions I've made personally, some of the transitions I've made uh, through that page, you know, and a, and a lot of last year was just a big step back from it. Like this yeah. is, this is a thing, but it's not necessarily becoming more than it is. So now I have some direction on that. And like I said, the t-shirt, yep. you know, I have a, a very 
realistic uh, goal of, let's say, 100 T-shirts a month. Well, if you have 2,500 loyal followers, uh, loyal, and I don't even want to say followers, let's say people who are invested in what yep. you're doing, um, you know, you could sell two years worth of shirts 100 at a time. You know, and that way you're not like forcing this stuff down their throat and beating them over the head with it. But if yep. your goal is just, okay, I want to sell a hundred shirts. I want to sell, you know, five new programs or five new coaching clients per month, you know, from that 2,500 allotment, not everybody's going to buy a shirt every month. Not everybody's going to sign up for coaching every month. So it does need to be a trickle effect. It does need to be yeah. a sustainable effect because people come and go. Uh, people lose interest. People find other things. I do think that there's something more approachable, uh, excitable about that. And that realization of breakdown of like, I don't need every person I have to, to believe in me or, or support me or, or buy my coaching or buy a product that I sell. I just need to communicate to the ones who are really paying attention that I can actually do something for as an exchange for Mm -hmm. this purchase. Like, I don't want you to wear a shirt because it's a cool design, more interested in it being a cool design and it's connected to something you care about. You know, that's, that's kind of the angle that I'm looking for. And those do tend to be slow burn gains, you know, that, that just longer game, yep. but dude, for 15 years on the internet, well, maybe not that, yeah, I guess 2007, 2008, 15 yeah. years, um, I've been playing the, the high pressure, fast pace kind of game and all it left me was just kind of feeling disconnected. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but I think that ties right into what we wanted to talk about. And now's a, probably a good pivot point to, yeah to discuss, you know, finding that group of, of people to surround yourself with uh, good training partners, good business partners, um, you know, good life partners, relationship partners, all of those things. And it really stems from the same place inside the individual. I don't think that you necessarily go out and you just become a great businessman and lack any capacity to be a good husband or boyfriend or brother or son or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those characteristics may get refined in one area, but the, the root of those actions, emotions, and feelings, they can be learned across the spectrum. So you kind of had that idea. So why don't you mm-hmm. open up with that a little bit and talk about it? Cause you've done a really great job of cultivating groups of men that fit what you're looking for too. And I think right. as a coach, a lot of times we just say, I need more clients. We don't define, man, I want some motivated, driven, successful what kind people. of clients. Yeah. And yeah. it's the same thing. If you don't know what you want, you get a lot of what you don't. Yeah, exactly. And the and part of the thought process that that brought this kind of to the forefront for this week was just you know I, I I do these you know these groups that I run every every few months or whatever, and it's and it's a really cool experience because it's always a smaller group setting. It's usually like three to six men that will come into to each one. And we spend eight weeks together going through the training program and all the content and everything. Um, but it just had me thinking as as one of these was closing down, ready to start another one that when I started doing a lot of this stuff, I didn't really know why I wanted to, to train men in a way that was helping. And it, and it took until I was like, well, what do selfishly kind of, what do, what do I need mm-hmm. in like, what would be helpful for me? And then I just essentially use that. And so like when I'm talking to guys asking like where they are with their training, with their nutrition, like all these kind of things, I was like, listen, I'm talking to you because the, the stuff that I say is what I need myself. 
Like the mm. messaging I put is more of like a self-reflection for the things that I'm going through and the things that I need out of training and, and how I manage that into my life with my job and the businesses that I own and stuff like that. And so it's connecting with you because you and I are obviously very similar. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to get along in this group. And so having these, these, these groups that last a couple of months at a time, it's like really cool to see that a other guys feel about a lot of things the way that I do. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I don't feel like that can be the case, like I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll have these ideas and stuff. I'm like, man, I am so on an Island with this, yep. you know? And, and it turns out that that's not the case almost every single time, right? There's always someone that comes in. They're like, man, I'm doing this. I'm struggling with this exact same thing. And so mm. I think from the starting point, it became, well, what would I like to have in a group that would hold me accountable? Or what would I like to have as a system for community where we're talking about training, we're talking about things that are going on in, at home, we're talking about things that go on at work, and how do I kind of build that together? Because that's what I really want for myself. And I wasn't seeing it in the way that I wanted it. And so it kind of all like it kind of all started selfishly from that point for I, I want to build this just for myself. And then you turn it turns out that there's a decent amount of other guys that are like looking for the exact same thing. Do you think the root in that stems from somewhat from our programming and, and you know, the nature versus nurture kind of effect mm. where we are communicate, you know, you know, men as a whole are somewhat labeled as stoic, quiet. Right. Uh, they don't talk about their feelings. They don't talk about their emotions. And I think that early on, maybe even not so early on into your life, you start to model that because that's mm. what you see as the strong hero type in the movies, you know, the strong man in your home or in your family, you know, they're stoic. They don't talk about their feelings. I talked on here one time. I've never heard my dad complain about anything, you know, like yep. I've never heard him say, I hate my job. I've never heard him say, I hate my bills. Like it's just head down and plow. And yep. I think much in the same way where potentially a woman would like to get off the hamster wheel of chasing perfection and beauty and be seen for who she is. I think maybe a man might like to be heard for mm. who he is. Um, yeah. and, and only as an argument counter to the, the popular opinion of what a man or a woman should be. A woman should be beautiful. A man should be stoic or this. I think when you get in, when you get behind the closed door setting with other guys that, you respect one for their accomplishments or, you know, the way they carry themselves or live their lives. And then the first person is vulnerable, dude, the walls come down. And that's why I mentioned before my first question to people, you know, especially like when I see them and I know them a little bit is how are you doing? Like really? Yeah. How are you doing? And dude, I don't know if they're just waiting for someone to ask and give a shit or if it's like, yeah, they, they know that I'm a person that, that is somewhat interested in that actually, but I do think men need to find other men that are willing to share that experience and get you mm-hmm. off that Island. You know, even if it's not mm-hmm. the same exact scenario, dude, you and I can talk about 15 things and there's parallels between our lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. So those parallels become lessons and they become help. So yeah, I definitely and- see why it's a beneficial thing. And, and what you end up learning, especially like just for the example of, of, of my groups, you know, two months isn't a long time. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we're meeting, when we're talking every week and we have that consistency, like that is what I think 
helps foster that communication more, right? Like yeah. having it be regular, consistent, like we're checking in every week, we're on a, you know, we're doing group calls together and stuff and everybody's learning each other. You know, it's not just like me talking to one dude, I talked to another guy, I talked to like, everybody's kind of in this group setting. And so when we're, we're talking about our goals, right? And, and we talk a lot about how to set goals at the very beginning and then everybody's checking in on each other throughout the whole thing because we said out loud like this is what my one my three year all of these things i'm working towards and so it becomes hey how's this going you said you were working on this did you do this today and so like having the deliberate like you said actually intentional how are you doing question and Mm -hmm. knowing that it's coming from people that actually care because i think you'll you'll see in the response that you get when you ask that if someone actually thinks that you care yeah. You know, because if they think that you do, they'll be honest and and you'll know the difference of that versus, oh, everything's fine. You know, things are good. And they just kind of pass it along because they don't really want to open up because they probably don't think that you're serious. Yeah. You know, so you can usually tell, like, if you ask somebody that and they just kind of like breeze by and like, oh, things are good. Thanks. How, how are you doing? You know, like that's usually not someone who thinks you're maybe as interested as you intend to be, or maybe they just call your bluff on it right away. Yeah. And they're just like, it's more of a, a, a pleasantry kind of a thing. Sure. Well, how do you think that, what, what advice would you give to somebody that is looking for that group, I guess, like looking for mm-hmm. that network, that, that connection or tribe, so to say, uh, to quote Sebastian Younger. Yeah. Uh, but they find the wrong one, you know, and not from a sense mm-hmm. of like, they can do the workouts, they can write the journal prompts, they can do those things, but they don't actually fully integrate or mesh very well. Mm. But that is the group that they want to be in, right? And uh, just a quick story, I, I had the same kind of conversation when we were at a, a hunting camp in Kentucky a few years back. I think I mentioned it on here possibly, but you know, there are five or six of us there. Great conversation, amazing, like people were sharing and talking and going deep and you know, the bourbon was being poured and it was two o'clock in the morning. And it was just one of those nights where there was kind of a magic in the air. And somebody said towards the end of the night, it was like, man, could you imagine if, if somebody like Rogan or Cam Haynes was here, like how cool that would be. And, you know, I didn't necessarily say it out loud at the time, but the, none of what had just transpired would have happened because of that, right. because we would have all been trying to impress that person. It, it may be, I don't know, maybe. Right. But I think that that happens to a lot of people, especially when there is a figurehead at the head of a group that is somewhat uh, like I want to be like that person. That may be right. the worst person that you could be involved in a group with because yeah. you start modeling to be like them rather than figuring out who you actually are. You know, mm-hmm. it's um, it's it's a very it's kind of a complex thing for me to, to sort out briefly, but. I do think that people find the wrong groups and they find success in somebody else's floor plan or map. And that somewhat prevents them from actualizing their self. And I know that you've talked about that too. Like you don't, you don't necessarily want to be like, just do what I say. You want to be like, well, here's what I do. Here's how I would do it if it were you. And hopefully that person can take those two ends of the spectrum and figure out what they would do in your absence, you know? Right. But how do you how do you navigate a person into the correct group if if they think they are but maybe they're not? Well, it's interesting that example that you brought up of having like the person be mm-hmm. the model 
rather than like the message or the system, so to speak. That's like, all I see anymore. Yeah. It's you know, always, it's not like, this, here's my this, process. This, this is yeah, me. Exactly. I'm cool as shit. Be like me. And, and especially in, in training, I mean, like we've, we've probably talked about this before. I don't even know if we've done it recording or not, but like there's been in the last like 30 years, I bet there's less than five people who are actually like credited with creating something in training that is unique. Sure. Right. Like everything has been around forever. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody takes something and then they say, this is, this is my system, this, and, and they make it about themselves rather than like, look, this is some things that can work. Like mm-hmm. this has been super successful with a lot of people and it probably will be successful for you if you're this type of person. Mm-hmm. But if not, like we can experiment and find what will be successful. And it's about like that repeat because, you know, and we're fortunate to, pr- I would consider Greg one of those probably five people, right. Oh. Who can actually be credited with like having created something unique in, in fitness in the last couple of decades. So like, we're pretty fortunate to be friends with somebody like that. And you knew Louie, who's mm-hmm. obviously in that re- in that conversation as well. So, I mean, there's handfuls of these guys that like, okay, you go to Louie because there's nobody else that can do what Louie does right. the way that Louie does it, right? Mm-hmm. Or like you go to Greg because Greg is the, the pinnacle of a lot of these things that he created and he can coach it better than anybody else, mm-hmm. right? But there's still lessons that can be pulled from each of those people without having to go to those people. Right. But if you're looking for that, it's a matter of I'm, I'm following the system. Who am I just going to, if, and if it's a coach, it's like, who am I just going to get along with better? Right. Right. Because there are all kinds of guys that I'm sure in powerlifting, like will pull things from Louis stuff, but would never get along with, with Louis in the gym or like wouldn't, would never last in right. West side. And same with Greg. I mean, Greg is as kind and as sweet as it gets you know, contrary to what most people think just from outward appearance. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's still probably people that would like not mesh with Greg on a personal level. Sure. And so there are things that like me and, you know, just from working around and near him and with him that like we could teach some of this stuff sure. and maybe they just get along with us better. Right. right? So with coaching, like, and, and if we're talking about a coaching relationship or, or something like that, where there is someone that's kind of the, maybe the leader of it or the head of it, that's, steering the ship, so to speak, the relationship part of it is always like what I'm telling people to look for first, because it doesn't matter how good the information is. If you're trying to get into this group or whatever, and you don't personally get along with the person who's presenting the information, like it's just going to go in one ear and out the other, Mm -hmm. right? It's like having a bad relationship with like your parents or whatever. And your dad tells you to do something. You're like, whatever, man, like, I'm not listening to that, you know, like, why would I listen to you right now? And and maybe that, (laughs) and maybe that's just like some rebellious teenager. Maybe that's like your whole relationship with, with people like that. Like you're never going to take advice to heart from people that you don't respect or care about or get along with, you know? And so I'm bad about that. And well, and I am too, like there's, there's people that I can be friendly with. Right. And, and not put off in the situation and still like I'll, I'll respect the time and like, I'll listen, but it's like, I'm not really listening. I'm bad at that. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think once I, you know, kind of a, a overshare on myself, but you know, probably one of my biggest pet peeves is willing, willing full stupidity. Like if mm. you're just stupid because you're unwilling to even remotely try to be intelligent, then I have no time or place for you. 
And, um, I mean, like, I just can't deal with it. I don't deal with it. I don't, it's probably one of the things that irks me more about people than anything. Like you can be fat, you can be skinny, you can be tall, you can be short. No problem. You know, doesn't bother me. Yeah. If you're stupid, it bothers like willingly stupid, like (laughs) ignorance is fine because you just don't know. But to know and then to still be stupid about it, I can't tolerate mm-hmm. it. And I, and a lot of times, you know, I meet these people and it's like in, in one version of stupid is like just lack of information. But in another right. is like there's stupidity in a, in a wide range of things. And whatever my radar is for stupid, once it goes <laughs> off, I'm pretty much over it. Like I, I just I need to do better about that and, and maybe yeah. potentially help somebody gain some knowledge. But willingful stupidity to me is somebody that is literally facing the truth and still arguing for their emotion. You know what I mean? It's like, I, well, I don't and, know. And there's an instance, and maybe not a specific, there's not, there's many instances, but more so maybe the word I'm looking for is like, there's this phenomenon in the last decade or so where, and I heard this said on a different podcast and uh, he says like, <clears throat> never in history has there been like more access to information and had, and we've had more dumb people. And then those dumb people are proud of their dumbness. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, and so he calls it the, the phrase he uses. I love, he calls it invincible ignorance. Oh yeah. And, and that's totally what it is. Like there's, there's people who know like, or, or I mean, I don't even know if it's like they know that they know or they don't know that they know. Like it's such this weird thing, but it's like they're they will die on the hill of being completely wrong, knowing they're wrong, but it's more about being right. You yeah. know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do, and that's that's kind of the question that I posed the other day when we talked was kind <clears> of <throat> all these people who have like turned their existence into fighting the COVID narrative or the vaccine narrative or whatever it is, like what, what are you doing? Like, at what point do you wave the victory flag or the the white flag of retreat? Like, like, how are you still doing this so fervently every single day? And, you know, and like, what's the prize to be won? Like, what, what do you win if you change somebody's opinion about it? Yeah. What do you win? So I don't know, but it's, it's a strange thing within me that I, that is one thing that I look out for is like just Mm -hmm. dumb people. But, man, there's some smart people that are really dumb too. You know, yeah. it's not like just in, you know, it's not like a quantifiable intelligence. It's like, a, it really is just that they're just dumb. Like yeah. for whatever reason, my body says they're dumb, they're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, you and I are pretty, you and I are really similar in this regard. We've talked about this before. We're like, I probably, man, I would, I would maybe consider it like one of the maybe two or three, like, gifts I think I was given in life is like gut feeling about people. Oh dude. Like pretty quickly. Like I just have a feeling and you know, I don't like test that a lot to like push it to see if I'm going to be right or wrong. But most of the time, like the initial gut feeling I get about somebody in the first handful of days or your minutes, even sometimes in a conversation, I'm pretty spot on about a lot of times on, you know, not whether or not they're like a good or bad person, but like for this type of thing where I know if even what they're saying is real, yeah, you know, I can, and and you're super similar with that. Like we can, we can spot those things. And and I, I feel super fortunate that I have that sort of 
kind of discernment because man, it's I'll tell so you much fakeness. Yeah. Well, it's for me, you know, it, it's not something that I go into expecting, you know, it's, it's literally, yeah. and it, it's not a psychic energy or some bullshit like that. Like, yeah. don't get it twisted. It's just there. I have met so many people in my life. I have done so many unique, crazy, exciting, stupid things in my life. I have a, I have a large amount of data to draw from yeah. in regards to people. You know, I've been stabbed in the back and I've been uplifted by people I never would have thought done it. So I, you know, I have a pretty strong gauge, but man, I can tell you there's been a few hands in my life that I've shaken and like one guy uh, in particular, I met him when I was in my twenties, just a, just an imposing looking guy, but he carried himself very well. And like just the Mm -hmm. best in the world. And, you know, I'd heard about him, I'd seen him around, but never met him. And when I met him, I was terrified, like mm. not looking at him, not anything like that. When I shook his hand, the literal thought that came through my, my brain was this guy could kill me, you know, wow. and not, not no reason to think that like he's yeah. wearing a white shirt buttoned down and, and blue jeans. Like he's not yep. threatening me. He's like, Hey man, how you doing? My thought was he could kill me. Mm-hmm. Then I met another guy, a uh, very well to do guy, got a uh, good career, good money, whatever. I shook his hand and I was like, man, this is a fucking scumbag. Like I just mm. knew it. And, and in both cases, uh, I found out more about the first guy. He, you know, he was a, he was a Marine. He had done a lot of special forces work. I did not know he was a Marine when I met him. So it wasn't like, yeah. oh, he's a Marine. He could kill me. It was just like, this dude has been busy. Puts off you that know? vibe. You know, he's been <laughs> yeah. busy before. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the other hand, the guy has proven himself to be a scumbag, you know, and it's yeah. not, I had no reason to think feel or decide either of those things but Mm -hmm. that is a very very continual thing that has happened throughout my life and actually i think that that is one of my strengths uh with sorenex outdoors is being someone who networks being someone who can unify people and bert taught me a lot uh i call bert the nucleus you know Mm -hmm. he's like he may not be the thing that people are drawn to but he is the one that is connecting the people to what they're drawn to. And Bert really imparted that upon me. I think Bert has a strong gut. We talk about people when we catch interest or, you know, look at potentially working with them. And it's not an everyday thing. We're not sitting here just grilling people, but like when somebody's like, yeah, what's up with this guy? And you know, it's, it's an important thing as a, as a business to not be interfaith, you know, not to have the Trojan horse example where you let in people because yeah. it looks pretty and shiny and it sells a bunch of t-shirts, but yep. you know, is that your demise in the end? So I think with a company like Sornex, a boss like Bert, the team that we have, I think that's one of my assets to the company is continually having a curiosity about people, curiosity about different things, and then deciphering within those things and interests who the people are that are actually genuine and real and would would help if you needed yeah. help but we could also help them versus the person who is going to step on your throat as soon as they're done with you and dude the world's rampant i mean it's it's yeah. full of both so i try to decipher and and that's probably why i'm guilty of trusting that gut instinct too often because as as many as i find that i'm like man this is just a sleaze ball that i want nothing to do with i find probably less but 
uh, a fair amount of people who were just like doing really, really great, amazing things that you would never know about otherwise, you know? So Corey Hawk being an example like that, you know, he's just a quiet guy that, that is making amazing, yep. uh, traditional bows by hand. And now he's teaching those people. Yep. You know, he's just a guy that I, I got along with from the jump and, yep. you know, Same. he, he has kind of woven himself into the Sornex outdoors fabric a little bit. That's a good call. There are other people that maybe have made it through the cut that I hope don't ever fucking come around ever again, but I'll see him <laughs> in a few days. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the truth of the matter is, is as I've yeah. grown older, my tolerance for bullshit and my recognition of someone just because they did something 10 years ago, that's like, I don't expect anybody to fall over their feet because I power lifted, you yeah. know, like that was a right. long time ago. I expect yeah. to be viewed on how I am and how I treat people, you know? So, and especially like in your instance, when you think of the, unbelievably large percentage of people who even don't even know what powerlifting is, Mm -hmm. you know, like they have no reference for what any of those things even mean anyways, you know? And, uh, it makes me think because that, that, you know, ability or gift or whatever we want to call it of that discernment, that gut feeling, I think is, you know, from just a survival standpoint, everyone has, Mm -hmm. but it makes me wonder like what has been, what has happened or what are we doing every day where that gets essentially muffled to where people don't actually have the ability to tap into that because everyone's, everyone's got it to some degree. So like, I'm sure it's, it's more heightened in others, but you know, why is that such a thing that's so muffled for so many where it's, it, it's evident that people just get sucked into the, these situations. I think that, you know, Instagram, Facebook being unique to our recent consciousness as far as I can see how many people like this thing or how many people share this thing or follow this thing. So I think that a lot of times people have turned that off because it's like, oh, there's 11,000 people here before me and this this is good for them and they're motivated by it and they're excited about it. Okay, I can probably trust it. So they, they turn off their instincts and trust of others. And I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that's false. Maybe it's just me rambling yeah. on, but I think there's something to it. You know, it's like if it's kind of like the cattle that cross the road, you know, like once the first cow goes, the others just fall in line because they see that it's doable. And I think yep. that's somewhat the, the case too, is like, it is the influx of like, the same faces and names that you see over and over. Well, obviously they must be doing something good. They must be reputable. They must be great. They could be the the worst person in the world, but they have good marketing. They have the ability and means to market heavily. So you're going to get more of that dose. So over time, it just seems like, well, they're still here. So they must be doing something good or they must be a good person. I don't know, but I think that's one mechanism for sure that, you know, where did the concept of a viral video come from? Like, you know, Mm. it's, it's a shared thing amongst millions across a consciousness. It's kind of like what you were talking about before it taps into the same thing that you're looking for. So do we love that meme because it's actually funny and we get it? Or is it because it's the viral thing? I don't know. And I I think that's where people need to sharpen their spears a little bit about, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and if it's them that's actually the genesis for the thought or the action. 
You know, am I doing this because somebody else tells me to? Am I doing this because it's what I want to do? Is it is it supposed to feel good? Is it supposed to be the trendy thing? As I've gotten more honest with myself about what I want, the man I would like to become, the man I would like to be remembered as, you know, the the approach to my life has gotten simpler. You know, it's uh, it's something that I think you're navigating somewhat too. Like you were talking about kind of refining things and, and paring it down. I think it's yep. a valuable tool. Um, I, I think that we need those smaller groups in some essence, but within, we need those smaller groups so that we can exist amongst the collective. And I just think that whoever you are, whatever you're into, there's enough people out there that will support you for exactly who you are rather than trying to reshape yourself. And that's a dangerous thing because a lot of these, uh, like even yourself or myself, when I coach, I'm trying to help someone improve their life yeah, and reshape their life within the confines of the statement of who they actually are. Right. And it's very difficult to, to help them to that sometimes rather than helping them become more like me or they become more like whoever they're, they're following. Yep. How do you navigate some of that stuff? How many, how do you not create a bunch of mini Rosses in your group? <laughs> in your group? Uh, man, that would be terrible. Um, I would think a lot of it is, is a little bit of what we were, we were talking about earlier is at least how, at least how I like to coach, mm-hmm. right. Is putting forth the idea of, look, this might work, mm-hmm. right? Like, like being up front with that at the beginning, like, look, these are the thing. like we said, these are the things that I have found success with personally, you know, a good percentage of the guys that come in, find success with these things. It might work for you. Sure. Right? Just based on that alone. But at the front end saying like, look, if not, I will help you experiment until we find something that does. Right. Like, and that's part of the, you know, the, the, what I think the coach really is more responsible for in a lot of degrees. It's not just like getting X result. It's about finding the path that gets to X result. Sure. Right. And that same path isn't going to be the same for everybody, but that, you know, I always think of this, I'm trying to think of, it's called like the hero's journey you know, it's mm-hmm. a writing thing, right? Yep. You know, and a lot of people like to apply that to coaching, but what gets lost is this idea that the coach, it, for example, is Hercules. Right. Right. In the story. Mm-hmm. And the coach is not Hercules in the cartoon. Anyways, coach is the little Danny DeVito, Phil Goatman, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's who the coach is. The, the client or the person that's coming to you for help is the Hercules. So it's mm-hmm. his job to find here's, what's going to work for this person. And a, a really great, you know, just in, for a saying I loved um, Julian Pinot, who runs strong fit and like does a lot of strong, strong man stuff. And he might be one of those other people I put in that group before of like, who's actually created a system that's really unique, mm-hmm. amazingly brilliant man. But he always says coaching is not about like teaching a squat. It's teaching that person to squat. Yeah. You know, and so finding the person that's going to pay you the attention that's like, look, this is my situation. It's I know I'm not like some snowflake that's unique, but look, this is what's going on in my life. How can we navigate this and find the path that maybe it deviates a little bit from what you're used to coaching? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I tend to because when I go work with coaches, I'm like, look, this is my situation. I have 
two kids. I have a, a business. I have training. I have all these other things that I'm doing. It's like not everybody has this exact thing, but mm. all people are busy. Right. So how do we navigate my version of busy and make something work for me? And I think that's where like the coach can be the most valuable is helping you navigate that stuff rather than be like, look, do this step by step all the way through and you'll get this. And if you don't, it's your fault, not the programs. Yeah. Right. Because we know this program worked for a ton of people. Sure. But that's not the reason that it works. Yeah. And, and one of the things, too, that I think uh, people need to understand about coaching sometimes you know, I posted about it just a few minutes ago. My workout last night was mace work. I mean, literally mm-hmm. some pendulums and some uh, 360s. And then uh, I just did some of my little mace push-ups I do on the floor, with the off yep. handle. And then pull-ups, uh, some Bulgarian split squats, and Hindu push-ups. Yep. And when I would do an upper body movement like the pull-up, the you know I would then switch to the Bulgarian. And then I would do the Hindus, and then I would switch to the pendulums or something like that to, to you know kind of keep the body moving. And it was 23 minutes where I literally never stopped pacing if I wasn't lifting. You know, it was 23 minutes of movement. Yep. But I was pretty crushed. You know, it was like a really good workout. And I think that people need to understand you don't need to have this magic potion, secret exercise, you know, perfect, perfectly written program. I've said this a thousand times. From a data level, I could write you the perfect program, but if you don't believe in it, you will not yep. get as much success from that program as if you believed in it. So yep. I, you know, I think that there needs to be, you know, just an introductory phase that looks somewhat similar for all your clients incoming. Right. Now, as a client, that may sound like, well, why are you giving me the same program that I gave this other guy? Well, I know what success looks like around those parameters. And these yes. parameters are the foundation blocks for the next 10 weeks and the next 10 weeks you have to crawl before you can walk and you have to walk before you can run. Mm-hmm. If after this 10 weeks, your markers are off the chart, well, maybe I failed you by not pushing you further, but now I know I need to jump some stages in my next 10 week program for you. But I need to have that baseline of information. A coaching is a relationship. It is an ongoing communicative, communicative relationship yeah. that builds over time. If you are just committed to, doing reps and sets, that's fine. That will get you somewhere. But the coaching aspect of it can give you knowledge behind it. It can give you caveats to think about when you're doing these movements, ways to feel. And that's the difference for me is like I can become so polished at a set of exercises that I know will work. I know will make you better. Um, And I can know how to coach those and I can know how to analyze the results that come from those uh, responses then I can do that forward. I can't just jump in and magically make someone a powerlifting champion in 10 weeks. It's impossible. I might be able to take a very high level athlete that gives me 10 years of backstory about their training and write 10 weeks forward. But if you're coming into this group or a group or any kind of setting, you have to integrate slowly around that coach. I mean, they have a system for a reason. And again, to use that instinct or that sniff test, you will know fairly quickly. You will know very quickly if that coach is worth his salt or if he's just depending on trickery and magic. You know, like as far as yeah, well, we've got to do this super suspended, high like high quality thing. Like, dude, it's just a tricep extension. Like, just grab a dumbbell and put it behind your head and start doing reps till it hurts. You know, like some of that minutia stuff is cool, but some of that minutia stuff is just to sell you a product at a higher price. 
it's not actually telling you or giving you more. It's just making you feel like, oh, that's worth more because it sounds fancy. So this this makes me think too to bring in the another angle of it because we talked about like the 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 coaching relationship, right? But mm. another one that I think you can you can speak to a lot, having been in a in an environment like Westside, is the importance of the training partners that are also doing the thing with you, like yeah. and how important that shared experience is with each other, and why that can be like another level of of measuring progress. Well, to uh, to to take from somebody who actually did it maybe better than I would have or, or explained it in a way that I related to very strongly that I didn't quite articulate as well in my mind. Uh, this is from Greg Panora. So Greg was actually one of the guys that was instrumental in, in getting me to Westside. Like I, I looked up to him as a lifter he was a phenomenally strong dude, but he was also one of the first and only guys that was really like helpful and friendly to me at the meets. And like, you know, man, you, you got to think about coming to Westside sometime. You got to get there. You got to visit, blah, blah, blah. And then that turned into, man, we, you got to move up here. You got, you know, so Greg was really helpful and we had a lot of similarities in the way we train and stuff. So I, I'll read this. And I thought it was, was very accurate to your question. The first question Louis would ask you is what you're going to do for this team. I said, I'm going to win. He looked back and said, everyone here is going to win, and that's not enough. After several confused moments and some leading, I said, I'm going to push my teammates to the brink of exhaustion and never let them know I'm tired. He smiled at me and looked at my face and said, welcome to Westside Barbell. What he realized is that the quality training partner will create quality competitors. Here's how I implemented that into my own team. This is a little Louis Simmons magic. I had three or four guys totaling around 1,985 pounds. Cagle. Uh, a guy named Dakota Cagle did one of the most impressive squats I've ever seen, and I believe it was 620 for 17. I turned all of my focus to Dakota. I made him the star. Every comment to the other guys was, yeah, but Dakota, he's about to destroy everyone. What happens is the weaker of the lifters will quit. They can't be told someone is better than they are. They can't believe that they will lose to someone that they were once as good as. But the true competitor will rise and try to meet or beat that expectation that they want to be told that they're great too. A few months later, I have another guy totaling, or I have multiple guys totaling in the 2,000 pound range, and now they're chasing Dakota, trying to take his head off. And I'll take the winner of that fight and whoever that is and turn my attention to him. So everyone gets better, everyone stays a competitor, but everyone's fighting for the win. And I think that's what it boils down to. Westside, for me, was not just reps and sets. It was not just weight on the bar. Because I came from a great gym, and all due respect to Robbie Burns, who opened his mm -hmm. gym, to me and Adam Hires and Jake Anderson and Corey Hayes, Brad Little, all those guys that trained in that garage, uh, Matt Sutton and so on. I mean, there's there a bunch of them. And we trained around the West Side principles, and we got very, very, very good. But what happened when you go up to another place, you know, whereas I was in argument as the strongest or one of the strongest guys on every exercise at Gorilla Squad, when I went to Westside Barbell, I became the weakest on everything. So understanding that the competitive nature of my mind, I, I will not accept that. You know, I will not take to heart that I am the weakest person in this room. I'm just not strong enough yet. So that comes. And then I started doing well. And I, you know, I caught some guys that I was behind. And then I outbenched some guys that I was behind. And I did some raw lifts in the gym that were, like, better than some of the stronger guys on the, on the board. Mm -hmm. and and vice versa like i got my ass kicked plenty too this is not the 
Brandon Lilly hero story. This is just mm-hmm. a man that got better because the people around me were, they were willing to die to get better. And I was yeah. too. So when you have a room full like that, um, it's very easy to get ahead. But I look back to the lessons that I learned at Robbie's gym. Robbie took guys that were somewhat, I don't want to say average because everyone in there was strong, but people who didn't have the experience or depth of time in the in the sport of powerlifting and made great lifters beyond what I believe those men walking through that door thought their potential even was. Yeah. And, you know, I think a guy coming in saying, I want to squat 500 pounds. Well, you squat 710 in a year, you know, those kind of things. So I think yeah. your teammates can critically, critically make or break you. You know, imagine going into a gym, uh, you know, with, with four or five guys who have no ambition to be a power lifter. They squat 300, 400 pounds for reps. They're kind of bodybuilding. You have to go in there and somehow find the will and the way to say, I'm going to put 800 pounds on my back and squat that and get mad about it and get motivated about it and get driven about it. There's no one else there to say, well, I'm going to do 805, motherfucker. You know, mm-hmm. and that's how it was at Westside. You know, you get yeah. up to you get up to a final plate or a final set, and it's like, all right, last set of two. Well, the last guy on the day is going for four because everybody else is done. They've got their briefs off, they got their bag packed, and they're getting ready to go do accessories. He won the day. So, what do you think happens yep. the next time? Somebody else wants that win. Somebody else wants that. And if you and Louis said it best, if you are not scared to death of your training partner you will not be the greatest in the world and not fearing them. Like maybe at West side it was cause there was fights in there all the time, but like <laughs> the fear that somebody in your training room or in your training group could kick your ass, you need to find another training yeah. group, but especially in something yeah. like jujitsu. If you're winning every role, you're probably not yeah. getting better. You know, right. um, if you're not being pushed, okay, you got one more rep or you got five more pounds or these things, it can't be. It was at West side. It was every day that we trained, but for the average person, you just need to find people that you can surround yourself with that may have skills less than you in some areas, but better than you in some areas. And you both rise the tide. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the problems that I found in some of the training groups that I, that I probably participated in myself where I was more focused on myself than the group, which was detrimental to the dynamic of the group. And then there were other times where people were focused on themselves more than the dynamic of the group. And I suffered for that. So yeah. It, it is a it is a delicate balance. It is something that takes time to understand and, and weed out. And I I think in any training setting you can get better. But when you find that core group of killers, like the guys that are going to do it to the limit, if that's your thing, you know, like if that was right. my thing at the time was, you know, I used to think I was going to die at fifty. You know, I thought if I lived to fifty one, yep. I didn't try hard enough. You know, so I was around guys like that. Um, I'll never forget to, to give some credit to Greg. I'd been out with him one night and we'd, uh, we'd been out partying a little bit and we were in a McDonald's and it wasn't too far from his house, a two story McDonald's in, in, uh, on high street in Columbus. So we were hanging out and we were, we were partying a little bit drinking and, uh, we ended up taking a ride back to his house and we get there and he goes in and he's like, somebody broke in my house. They stole everything. I had a 60 inch TV. They stole my TV. You know, like he was, he was like shocked about it, pissed about it. This is like two or three in the morning. So he's like, well, shit, I got a train in the morning, literally walks in and lays down on the floor and goes to sleep. Like didn't call the police. Didn't do anything. He, he went to sleep. <laughs> <didn't matter. laughs> and then he went and trained the next morning and called the police the next day. You know, that was just oh the mentality yeah. of, 
the kind of place that we were in and mm-hmm. dude, it was, it was beautiful and it was destructive at the same time, uh, for many things, but not every, not every training group is West side barbell. You know, that right. was literally the place where you went to try to be the best in the world. So I just think that you have to be a contributor, but you also have to be someone that can take, uh, from that group as well. You have to give yeah. and take no matter what you're doing in life. I just think that some people wanted to train at West side for the fucking t-shirt. Yeah. You know, and that's cool too. You know, mm-hmm. it just wasn't who I was. Like I didn't right. want to train it for the t-shirt. Um, I wanted to wear the t-shirt on the platform when it mattered, you know, and that yeah. was, that was a different mm-hmm. thing. Like it's kind of like the hell's angel shirts, you know, you can buy them online right. now or you can, or you can, or you can have a patch <laughs> and, and it's, it's not the same. So, um, I don't there know. Was it, a- it, that's probably a long rambling way to put it, but Greg nailed that right there. And just the fact that you, a coach should reward his best athlete and then turn his attention to that best athlete. Because right now we're on that groove of improvement. It's going to stall and then somebody else is going to catch up. So Louie was very good about that. And it caught a lot of feelings for people that couldn't handle that, that they were the man one day and then somebody beat them. And now Louie's giving them all their attention but he played psychological warfare with all of us because yeah. if you were bulletproof to his shit talk to the fear of, of a fight or a threat from anybody else in the gym, if you could overcome that and you squat eight, 10 sets, every time you squat squatting three squats on a Saturday morning, isn't that hard. Right. You know? So it was preparation beyond what we needed to be prepared for. There was a funny, uh, Louis story that I had heard and I, I'm pretty sure it was from, uh, on his podcast. I'm pretty sure it was Corey Gregory, Mm-hmm. had mentioned it on his podcast and it was like the first time he had gone in to, to try and uh, see if Louis would let him train there. And like Louis first thing he said, he's like, all right, we'll come in on Friday, which is like, you know, which is squad day. Yeah. And he's like, and you can go squat with Amy and yeah. that'll be how you like it. Yeah. And so, and like Corey's like, uh, okay. And so he's like kind of in that mode where he's like, oh, well that's kind of embarrassing, you know, but then she, puts him under the table basically. Cause they start with mm-hmm. like good mornings, you know, and she's just oh, yeah. crushing him. And so, but like mm-hmm. that thing of like the first thing, he's just going to mess with your mind and oh, you yeah. either respond to that positively or you chicken out and you, you don't come back, you know? Well, that's what I told you that, that time I met him at Bob Evans. He said, you know, he'd seen me lift. He invited me up. He said, what do you weigh? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm 272. He said, what did you squat at that meet? And I was like, 750. He said, it's not going to cut it. You know, I got a 181 woman that squats uh, 750, you know, and it like, I don't care if it hurts your feelings. That's, that's what yep. the books show, you know, like that's the truth. <laughs> right. But that was the cool thing about him too. He, you know, you did something, you thought it was great. You know, you feel good about it. And he's like, well, your form broke down and you just kind of muscled your way through it. Well, isn't that what mm-hmm. I was supposed to do? No, you're supposed to hold your fucking form, you know? So mm-hmm. there was always that refinement and that shit talk uh, that yep. Louie was like the best at in the world. But, um, I just think that a lot of people in, in my experience, okay. In my experience, I have always done well with that overbearing coach, you know, the kind of one that yells and screams at you and tells you you're a piece of shit. I've always done good with that. Mm -hmm. That's how I self-coach myself, self-loathing, self-coaching. It's a method I call it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've done, I've responded to that. I don't think it's for everyone. Uh, I definitely saw it break people. I definitely saw a guy move his entire life to the gym, walk in and ask Chuck where he could put his bag. And Chuck said, you can't train here, leave. And that was, you know, Chuck had that assessment of him two minutes walking inside the door. He's like, no, you can't train here. 
and the dude had moved there. So, you know, it's one of those situations where there's, it took life back down to what it is. It is, yeah. it is just survival, you know? And, um, I got kicked out of there because I was so distracted in my life. There was so much shit going on and just not good stuff. Louie was like, you need to take some time away, get yourself together and come back. Because as of myself, he didn't give a shit that I wasn't getting better. And he told me that he was like, it's your life. You don't have to get better, but you're, you're taking away focus from Mm. the teammate. And dude, that was hard. That was very hard for me to heal, to hear because at that time, West side was my Everest, but I went over to Lexington extreme and started training with Danny Dague and those guys and actually for myself found an environment that was not as cutthroat in that moment, but we built into that because Chuck was training there. Michael Cartinian was training there. Jason Coker trained there. So we ended up kind of developing our own group uh, over some time. And, you know, Mike Johnson, a strong guy, Danny Day was the kind of orchestrator of all of it. And that's where the the cube began to formulate with Jimmy Harris, my training partner, one of my, my closest friends at the time. And it was just, it was an experimental place that we could experiment. Whereas at Westside, yeah. it was somewhat Louis experiment. Yep. That place had no boundaries. So I don't know that the evolution would have worked in reverse. Like if I had gone from a place right. where I could be hyper creative, hyper individualized, and then into a place where it's real structured and rigid, I yep. don't know if I would have done so well, but because I had the organization, the structure and that emphasis first, I was able to take those lessons and apply them in a less constrictive environment and still find success. And actually the most success I ever found in my life. I was stronger. I think I was the first person to leave West side and put up a bigger total than when they mm. were there. And then I did the raw stuff. So, <laughs> and that really kind of to bring it full circle and, you know, we're, and start to close it, but it tells that story of what we were talking about on how you find what's yeah. going to work. Like you go somewhere until, you find the environment that is conducive to you progressing, mm-hmm. you know, and you did some and you'd probably, you mean, you probably had a ton of progress with Louie. Oh yeah. But for then sure. like, but then like you said, it just took a different type of system mm-hmm. and different type of environment to, to have you, to have you flourish even more. Well, and so I don't think, I that, think I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I don't think yeah. that I would have failed had I stayed at Westside. Right. It was my, my outside the gym problems became so and that's the way it was at west side because everybody kind of knew everybody's story and you know that led to gross, gossip sometimes that led to drama sometimes but it really was for me i was just trying to juggle living in columbus having a kid in kentucky you know and, and bouncing around and all these things and trying to check all the dots in my life and it was just too much whereas yeah. when i went you know at west side it was like they had a reputation of greatness so they didn't want anything less than that. Whereas at Lexon, they were trying to build their reputation of greatness. Yeah. And it was more understanding of, okay, you've got a life outside of this place. We expect you to be here. We expect you to be dedicated, but handle your shit too. And that, yeah. was, just, that was just enough of a pressure release on me that I was like, you know what? I can't make it to training on Monday. I'm going to train at home, but I'll be here Tuesday morning for accessory day or whatever. That was just yep. not an acceptable solution when I was at Westside. It was like, be there, yep. you're fucking done. And yep. just having a group that was more understanding and they knew on Monday at home, I would train my ass off. I wasn't going to be a detriment on Tuesday morning coming in, in whatever condition or not right. showing up or not having trained the day before. So 
you just have to kind of, it, it is life. You have to experiment, try, fail, pick yourself up and keep moving forward. But along the way, you will start to identify markers of people. I knew the guys at Lexington were going to be great lifters. I just didn't know what the environment would be like, but I brought a flavor to that environment that I think helped everyone just like everybody had their own flavor that helped everyone mm-hmm. else. So yeah. The, and, and in my closing thought that as I was giving, as you were giving that example, that's kind of the whole point is as much as we would like to say, we don't want you to go into somewhere and realize it's not for you. Sometimes that's necessary to know what isn't going to work. So like, we don't want to say like, you know, you might end up wasting money if you're joining a coaching group or whatever, but sometimes that just has to happen. So, you know, more so, and sometimes it's even more important. What isn't for you Yeah. before, until you find the thing that this is, you know, you might go through two or three coaches or two or three groups and you're like, this just isn't, mm-hmm. this isn't working or whatever, but that's giving you just as much, data and information as the one that is actually going to end up working for you because you know all the things that now I have this experience to go forward and be like, look, if it's anything like this, I don't want this. Right. Right. And that's just as important. Oh, it is. And I mean, I think it's, it's how you refine relationships. It's how you refine your workspace. It's how you refine yourself in, in any avenue as an adult or in life, you have to try, assess, reapply. You know, it's even if it's the same thing over and over, even if you're doing a good job, consistently, healthily reassess yourself and just say, is this what I still want? Is this still serving me? Am I still on course for the life that I want to build? And I know that sounds a little deeper than it has to be on every little thing, but I feel like if you start defining those parameters for your life, the things just start to stay within those walls. You don't have to do a lot of excessive thinking or work. To, to hold that line. It just becomes a standard of how you live. Exactly. And I think we'll cut it there. That's All a right, good brother. spot to wrap it, it man. up, man. Um, I think we're still planning on next week, but with travel and all and winter strong and everything happening next week, we'll, we'll, we'll keep up, but I'm not, we might do, we'll figure we, something out. You want to do it like on Monday? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do let's, it before let's knock it out Monday. And travels. That way everybody's, you know, we can release it during winter yep. strong and, uh, Yeah, we'll just go from there. But I think, yeah, let's record on Monday. Sounds good. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, guys.